Well, turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 25. I want to talk to you tonight about uh, this uh, Wednesday night series we've been doing for several weeks. We've uh, entitled Stories in Genesis. And, um, and, and they're really not designed, at least from my perspective, they're really not designed to be sermons. There are things that uh, are told to us in the book of Genesis that, uh, that's important for us. Everything in the Old Testament, is, uh, the Bible says, was given to us for types and admonitions for us to learn uh, more about our relationship with God and the redemption that we have in Jesus. And so everything in the Old Testament is a type or points to uh, something that belongs to us or God's plan for us or something along that line. And, and as such, there's, um, there's a lot of information that, uh, well, it seems to me that gets overlooked. And, and I don't propose to go through. It's not uh, anything that we want to go through verse by verse. We'd be here for forever and a day to try to do that. But, uh, but there is some interesting information uh, that, uh, that will help us to understand what God's plan is and how to walk according to that plan. So tonight I want to talk to you about uh, Isaac, Jacob, and Esau. Um, Isaac is an interesting character. He's the son of Abraham. He was the son of promise. You remember Abraham had two sons. He had Ishmael by uh, Sarah's handmaid, Hagar, who was an Egyptian slave girl that lived with her. Uh, that attended to Sarah, her her mistress. And um, you remember the story about how that um, Ishmael was, once he was born, Abraham started looking to him for a period of time, for about 15 years, looked to him as to be the, his heir. And that wasn't God's plan. And uh, the, the great story of Abraham's faith brought about the birth of Isaac, Abraham and Sarah's faith together brought about the story of, of Isaac and, uh, and all the things that we have record of concerning him. We also have a great um, illustration uh, typifying the, the believer. Isaac is all about sonship and the believer. And, uh, and it was required by God for there to be a death of Abraham's only son, meaning Isaac. But then God stepped in and became the sacrifice for him and for us. And Isaac figures prominently in the story because he was willing to go along with what his father was doing. But other than that, Isaac really didn't have too much of a, um, well, he's not vocal in his role that he played. He asked one question of his father, where's the, uh, where's the, the lamb for sacrifice? And Abraham answers him that God will provide it. But outside of that, um, Isaac is just a, a willing participant in whatever his father's doing. And Isaac lived longer than any of the, the four major patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. He lived 180 years, and we know less about him than any of the rest of them. The most charitable thing that we can say about Isaac is that he was uh, nondescript, that there really weren't too many things about him that... Uh, interesting stories or, or things that we can learn from concerning him. There are a few things. But one of the uh, interesting things about Isaac that differentiates him from any of the other patriarchs, major patriarchs, and that is he always lived inside the land of promise. He's the only one of the patriarchs that did. Isaac was, uh, as I said, Isaac is a type of sonship and the... the uh, the inheritance that we have as believers. It's, uh, it's interesting that, uh, that, and we'll talk about the birthright a little bit when we get to uh, Jacob and Esau. But it's interesting to me that much is made of spiritual heritage by God through Abraham. Much is made of the birthright, the double portion. There's a lot of things that are said. There's a lot of emphasis is placed on that. But God seems to overlook that when it suits his purpose. For example, Abraham was not the firstborn of Terah. Isaac was not the firstborn of Abraham. Jacob was not the firstborn of Isaac. And Joseph was not the firstborn of Jacob. So it's the birthright 
we have to conclude that the birthright has more of a spiritual heritage, a spiritual connection than a physical one or a natural one. Now, we're going to start reading in uh, Genesis chapter 25 in verse uh, 19. And it's uh, going to tell us about Jacob and Esau. But we're, we're looking at this initially from Isaac's perspective. So Genesis chapter 25, verse 19, it says, And these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah to wife. That'd make uh, Abraham 140. Uh, Rebekah was the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Petaram, or somewhere, the sister to Laban the Syrian. And Isaac entreated the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord was entreated of him, and Sarah his wife conceived. And the children struggled within her. And she said, if it be so, why am I thus? In other words, she's saying, if this is God's will, why is this happening to me? You ever wondered that? If I'm in the will of God, and if this is God's promise, why am I having so much trouble? That's what she's asking. And she went to inquire of the Lord. Now notice verse, uh, beginning in verse 23. And the Lord said unto her, Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. And one people, the one people, shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. And the elder shall serve the younger. Now, let me ask you a question. Is there any way that Isaac would not be aware of what the Lord told Rebekah? Is there any possibility that somehow or another Rebecca just kept that to herself and didn't share with Isaac what the Lord said? That seems so far-fetched, I don't even think it's worth considering. Don't you agree? My point is very simply this. Both Rebecca and Isaac knew what the Lord said about his plan concerning Jacob and Esau. Concerning Jacob and Esau. In other words, if I can use my own terminology for this, and you judge it to see if I'm adding anything to the scripture or taking anything away from it. The Lord is saying, Jacob will be the younger, but he gets the birthright. Now, if they know that before the children are ever born, why do they act in such a way, in the way that we know that they do? Rebecca and Jacob trying to deceive Isaac to get the birthright. Well, let's pick up in verse 24. And when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red all over like a hairy garment, and they called his name Esau. After that came his brother, and his hand took hold of Esau's heel. And his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was three score years old. That's 60. That means uh, Abraham would be 160. Abraham lived to be 175. So he lived 15 years after Jacob and Esau were born. And Isaac was three score years old, 60 years old when she bare them. And the boys grew. And Esau was a cunning hunter, a man of the field. And Jacob was a plain man dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he did eat of his venison, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now, as I said, the Bible really doesn't tell us a whole lot about Isaac. But we can get some hints and draw some conclusions from some things that the Bible does say. For example, the Bible says that Isaac loved Esau. Realize that Isaac would know what the word of the Lord was that came unto Rebekah about the two nations the younger serving the elder. They would know when the, the two children were, the two boys were born, they would recognize if they understood what God was talking to them about at all. They would have to recognize that Jacob was the one that God had chosen to be the, the inheritor to get the double portion. Now notice why it says that Isaac loved Esau. It says Isaac loved Esau, verse 28 because he did eat of his venison. Now there's a reason to pick a favorite child. It's interesting also to notice what the Bible says about Esau. 
It says he was a cunning hunter, uh, a man of the field. This typifies that he was a, a person of the world. There are two people in Scripture that are identified as hunters. One is Nimrod, the other is Esau. And they've got a lot in common as far as their attitude towards spiritual things and the things of God are concerned. So Esau typifies the man of the world. Jacob typifies, it says he was a plain man and dwelt in tents. The word plain is the Hebrew word tam, T-A-M. And it's translated in other places in the Old Testament as upright or righteous. So I don't know what you think when you read the, the scripture that says he was a plain man. The, the idea that I've always had without a knowledge of what the words themselves mean is that he was kind of a mama's boy, afraid to get his hands dirty, just really wasn't a man's man. But Esau, he's your guy. He's the guy you'd like to go hunting with. He's the guy you'd like to hang around with because he's a real man. But the Bible is showing some spiritual attitudes here. And remember, the birthright, as far as God is concerned, is a spiritual connection with him. The double portion, think about it from, uh, from God's perspective. What would it matter who got the double portion if you're operating in Abraham's blessing, God will multiply whatever you have anyway. So whether you get a single portion or a double portion, if you're following God, I'm talking about these two guys being heirs of Abraham's blessing, then abundance is never going to be an issue. It's never going to be a problem. So then why the emphasis on the birthright? Why the emphasis on the double portion from God's perspective? Because the one that has the birthright has the connection with him. He's the one that's directly connected with God just like Abraham was. That's the significance. Now let's turn over to the, the, uh, the next few verses. It says in chapter 25, verse 29, it says, And Jacob sod pottage, cooked, in other words, and Esau came from the field, and he was faint. Now this typifies also something else. If the field is the world, it, uh, it shows you the people of the world are never satisfied with what they're doing out there. There's no satisfaction in the world, the things of the world. Now, you can learn that the easy way or the hard way, but you, everybody comes to the same realization. There's just nothing out there to satisfy. So Esau said to Jacob, Feed me, I pray thee, with that same red pottage, for I am faint. Therefore was his name called Edom. And Jacob said, Sell me this day thy birthright. Now, here again, if Jacob is close to his mom, I would assume that Jacob has been told by his mother what the Lord had spoken to them when they were still in her womb. It would indicate to me that Jacob, these verses would indicate that Jacob had an interest in the birthright. And where would he get that interest if not from his mom and his dad? Again, it seems unlikely, nearly impossible, in my thinking, that he didn't already know what the, what the uh, word of the Lord was that came to his mom when, before they were born. So Jacob says, sell me your birthright. And Esau said, behold, I am to the point to die. What profit shall this birthright do to me? Uh, folks, one thing that you, you may realize, if you haven't already, people of the world are dramatic. He says... I'm at the point of death. What good's a promise going to do for me? I have a hard time believing he was really at the point of death. How about you? But that's the way he approached it. People of the world are impulsive. And so Jacob said, swear to me this day. And he swore unto him and sold his birthright unto Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and pottage of lentils. And he did eat and drink and rose up and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Now, uh, Hebrews chapter 12, I think it's verse 16, speaks of this event in a very negative way. Um, the writer of the book of Hebrews, I believe it was Paul, talks about casting out the profane person. And he uses an, ex uh, uh, an example of being profane as Esau selling his birthright. In other words, it's talking about an attitude towards spiritual things an attitude toward the things of God. And the Jews understood the type or the meaning 
of this story that the Old Testament tells us about Esau and uh, selling his birthright. It was profane in the eyes of God because it indicated that he didn't care about having a connection with God. And Jacob did. So over in chapter 28, we're still talking about uh, Isaac now. We've seen a little bit about Isaac and a little bit about Jacob and Esau too. But now it's going to tell us some things about Isaac, what he was like. And it says, and there was a famine in the land beside the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. Folks, the devil doesn't have anything new. Same thing he threw at the ones that came before us, he's going to throw at you. And famine's always a good one to use. Because when people are worried about not having enough, they're more inclined to trust in themselves. So Isaac went into Abimelech, king of the Philistines, into Gerar. He goes to the same person that his father Abraham did almost 100 years before. Well, wouldn't be 100 years, many years before. Abimelech's still alive, at least. We don't know how old he was. But he goes to the same person. In other words, he's looking for somebody to solve his problem. Where did Isaac get that? Has he not learned from his father, even about the mistakes that he made? I teach my kids my mistakes, don't you? I want my kids to learn from my mistakes. I don't want them to repeat them. But here's a situation where Isaac is repeating the same exact mistake that his father made with the same king. So he goes into to Gerar, the king of the Philistines, unto Gerar. And the Lord appeared unto him and said, Go not down into Egypt. Apparently Isaac's plan was to do the same thing that Abraham did, and that is to go to Egypt, but he got as far as Gerar. Now Gerar is uh, borderland between the territory of Egypt and the promised land. And so he goes halfway or just to the edge of the promised land and the Lord appears to him. And he says, go not down into Egypt, dwell in the land which I shall tell thee of, sojourn in this land and I will be with thee and will bless thee. For unto thee and unto thy seed I will give all these countries and I will perform the oath which I swear unto Abraham thy father. And I will make thy seed to multiply as the stars of heaven and will give unto thy seed all these countries and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you're such a good guy, Isaac, because you've always obeyed me and because you've kept yourself pure. Now notice the reason that Isaac has a, a promise to hold on to from God because that Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes and my laws. And Isaac dwelt in Gerar. And then he does the same thing. He makes the same mistake that his father did with the same king and tells Ahimelech, I'm sorry, Abimelech, that Rebekah is his sister and not his wife. And Abimelech finds out that that's not the case and has it out with him about that. Follows the same... And the type of that is this, when you're living on the borderland between the will of God and the world, it's a whole lot easier to act like the world. It's a whole lot, you put yourself in a position where it makes it easy to sin. So many people are wanting to see how close to the edge they can get before they fall over. I don't. I want to see how far away from the edge of the cliff I can stay. I want to stay in the safety of God. So it says in verse 12, Then Isaac sowed in that land where God told him to be and received in the same year a hundredfold, and the Lord blessed him. And the man waxed great and went forward and grew until he became very great, for he had possession of flocks and possession of herds and great store of servants. And the Philistines envied him for all the wells which his father's servants had digged in the days of Abraham his father. The Philistines had stopped them and filled them with earth. Now, here's something also that's, uh, uh, that's a difference between, him, between Abraham and his son Isaac. Abraham was a man of altars. It tells us time after time after time where Abraham would go somewhere and there'd be some significant occurrence. Sometimes the Lord would appear to him. Other times it was just an offering that he'd make to the Lord or whatever. Abraham would build an altar. Isaac doesn't build altars. 
Isaac is a man of wells. Now, we think of a well as a hole in the ground where you can put a bucket down on a rope and pull up water to drink. That's not what wells means in the Bible. That's a cistern. Not a brethren, a cistern. A cistern is, is what we would call a well. A well in the Bible is a spring of water. It's running water. And where it says that Isaac was a, um, a man of wells, it tells us seven different wells that were significant in Isaac's life. The most significant one is Beersheba, which is the well of the oath. This first well that he finds is the well of him that liveth and seeth me. And each of these wells has a significant name relative to the importance that it played in his, his life or the events or whatever. Jacob, on the other hand, was not a man of the well. He was not a man of, of altars. He was a man of tents. The, the most significant thing it says about Jacob is that he pitched his tent from one place to the other. He knew that he was a stranger. And it signifies so. So here it says that, that uh, the Lord blessed Isaac because, as God said, because Abraham obeyed his covenant. He kept his commandments. So it tells about what Isaac did regarding the wells. It tells us as he got bigger and stronger, as Isaac prospered and, and increased, then Abimelech decided he needed to make a covenant with Isaac so that he didn't create a, a problem, so that Isaac didn't create a problem for the Philistines. So they do. They make a covenant together at the end of the chapter. Now, over in the next chapter, it tells us the story of, of Rebekah and Jacob deceiving Isaac. It says, And it came to pass that when Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau his eldest son and said unto him, My son, and he said unto him, Behold, here am I. He said, Behold, now I am old. I know not the day of my death. Now, therefore, take, I pray thee, thy weapons, thy quiver, and thy bow, and go out into the field and bring me some venison. He's planning to bless Esau with the blessing of the firstborn. He's planning to give Esau the birthright in spite of what God said when they were in Rebekah's womb, in spite of the deal that Jacob and Esau made, which would have been a binding arrangement, binding agreement. In spite of these things, and I'm sure Jacob made that known as well, in spite of these things, Isaac is going to do what he wants done. Now, here's another interesting fact, and that is we know of about 40 to 60 years that Isaac is not mentioned. As I said, he lived to be 100 and 180 years old when uh, the two boys, Jacob and Esau, were born. He was 60. So that's 120 years. They were 40 when Esau took a wife. So that would make him 100. So for the next 80-something years, or, or 80 or less years, we don't know exactly, but up to 80 years, we really don't know anything about what's going on. What we just read about uh, Isaac going down into to, uh, Abimelech happened before the children were born, not after. So Isaac, who lived longer than any of the other major patriarchs, basically rusted out. There's nothing significant that's happening in his life for the Bible to tell us about. He's just living in the land of promise. Now, I don't really know what to make of that. Do you? I would certainly hate to think that that would be the way my life goes. Uh, an extremely significant, maybe even the major part of his life, and we don't even know what happened to the guy. The Bible is completely silent. However, when he gets old, he knows that his days are close to being over. Then he makes his own plan concerning the birthright. Now, I'm not going to take a lot of time and talk about the story because I trust everybody knows what it was. But just to hit the high spots in case somebody doesn't know, Rebecca hears what Abraham said, or what Isaac, excuse me, says to Esau. And so while Esau is out in the field, Rebecca comes up with the scheme to trick blind Isaac into thinking that Jacob is really Esau. And so they put skins, hairy skins on him on his hands and his arms, his neck. They put 
Esau's clothes on him that would smell like him. All trying to trick his father. They take a, a, a lamb and Rebecca fixes it the way that he likes it. And she's going to try to push it, pass that off onto something that uh, Esau killed. But I go back to my original thought earlier in the service. Why? Why do they feel like they have to do this when God has already spoken? Now, folks, here's the type. And in my, in my thinking is the most important part of this story, the story of Jacob and Esau. Jacob represents and is a type of the believer, the heir, the rightful heir of the blessing of Abraham, struggling between his two natures. Now, I hate to use that term because man doesn't have two natures. He only has one. Maybe we should say the struggle between the flesh and the spirit. Because his whole life, at least the early part of his life, even the major part of his life, is spent struggling to try to help God do what God's already said that he will. And his mother's right there with him. Why doesn't somebody in this group say, well, if Isaac believes it is time to pronounce the blessing, Isaac knows what God has said. We'll leave it in the hands of God to work it out according to his plan and purpose. But that seems to be such a hard thing for the natural man to do. The natural man wants to work things out to suit himself. And even when he can find a promise from God saying that this is God's will, the natural man always wants to try to help. And it's going to cost them dearly, as it always does. So they pull off their charade. They trick Isaac. Someone once said that uh, Isaac went by his feelings. He felt Jacob dressed up like Esau, felt the hair on his arms. He didn't understand why his voice didn't sound the same. But he felt the hair on his arms and he smelled Jacob or smelled Esau's clothes. He went by his feelings and was deceived. Your feelings will always deceive you. So as soon as they get the, the blessing and he pronounces the blessing of the firstborn upon Jacob, as soon as they leave the room, they meaning Jacob and Rebekah, as soon as they leave the room, Esau comes in. Esau finds out what's going on and he's hot. He threatens to kill him. Now, I'm not sure why he didn't care about the blessing of the firstborn when he was at the point of death because he was hungry. Worked hard that day and thought he was going to die. He didn't care about it then. So I'm not sure why he cared about it now. But he threatens to kill Jacob. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Rebecca, remember, Jacob was the one that Rebecca loved. Rebecca, whose plan it was, whose idea, uh, who originated the idea of fooling Isaac into thinking Jacob was his older brother. The last thing she would want to do, I would think, is to be separated from her favorite son. Yet what she does to deceive Isaac costs her 20 years of fellowship with her son. And she never sees him again. Now let me show you something else about this that, that uh, really is, in my thinking, the turning point of the story. When Esau comes in and finds out what's happened, let me find it. Well, let's start reading in verse 32. This is where Esau comes in and he's got the... the Meat made and ready, everything's ready. And Isaac, his father, said unto him, Who art thou? And he said, I am thy son, the firstborn of Esau. And Isaac trembled very exceedingly. Now, there's a verse of scripture in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 20, that says it was by faith. It's the only thing mentioned about Isaac's life in the Heroes Hall of Fame. It says, By faith, Isaac blessed his sons. And the implication is that was his only purpose here on the earth is to pronounce the blessing of God upon the sons in the way that the Holy Ghost came upon him to do. Now, he was tricked. He was fooled. There's no question about that. Deceived into thinking that Jacob was really Esau. But what he prophesied over Esau 
I'm sorry, what he prophesied over Jacob, thinking he was Esau. The blessing of the firstborn, he did by faith as he was inspired by the Holy Ghost. Here, when he finds out that he's really blessed Jacob and not Esau, notice it says, and Isaac trembled very exceedingly. In other words, he realizes that his plan was contrary to the plan of God. He trembled very exceedingly and said, who, is, who and where is he that has taken venison and brought it to me and I have eaten of all, the, uh, eaten of all before thou camest and blessed him? Yea, and he shall be blessed. In other words, he realizes the blessing that I gave to Jacob, even though I was deceived, I gave by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. Now, again, I'm going to ask the question, and, and maybe it's an unfair consideration. You decide for yourself. But your grandfather is Abraham. You were 15 years old when your grandfather Abraham died. You know how young kids are with their grandparents. What do you think the stories were that Abraham told Jacob and Esau? Would they not be about the times where God appeared to them? Would they not be about the times where believing God's promise brought about the impossible? Would they not be the times where God delivered them? The military excursion where he defeated the four enemy kings and stuff like that. Wouldn't that be the stuff as a teenage boy you'd want to hear from your grandfather? Why would he not be so schooled into the understanding? Because remember, Abraham was all about his children. Abraham's only concern was for his seed. Well, I'm sure when Isaac was born, the Bible, well, in fact, the Bible tells us what a feast it was when they weaned the child and, you know, the time and the effort that Abraham put into raising his young son. What do you think it's going to be like with grandkids? Is there any reason to think that Abraham would not take an interest in his grandkids and put first and foremost the notion of following God and whatever God says will come to pass. See, in my thinking, that would be first and foremost. That's what I would expect Isaac's, I mean, uh, Abraham's relationship with his grandsons to be all about. Wouldn't you? Well, if so, they didn't get the lesson. Because Jacob is not one that accepts the will of God as it's relayed to him or told to him to be enough to stand back and let God do his thing. He's going to take it onto his own, onto himself and into his own hands. The same thing is true for Isaac, his father. And maybe that's the break. Maybe that's why Abraham didn't, wasn't able to, to uh, effectively put into Jacob and Esau, certainly not Esau, but not even Jacob, a trust in the Lord and a, and some kind of residual relationship because of the covenant blessings. Maybe it was because Isaac had a greater influence and we don't know anything about him except he's trying to do things his own way in spite of what the Lord said. I don't know. But there are a lot of things for us to learn out of that. That's for sure. I don't know about you, but I've been on both sides of that fence. There have been times where I've trusted the Lord faithfully and there have been other times where I ignored it and tried to do it myself. And trying to do it myself never worked out. Never did. So, here's Jacob and Esau. Isaac trembled exceedingly, very exceedingly. And said, the blessing that he had given Jacob, and yea, he shall be blessed. So what happens? Now Rebecca comes up with an idea at the end of chapter 27 comes up with an idea for Jacob to run from the promised land, the land of promise, to run to his, her, her brother's house in Syria. His name was Laban. And he spends 20 years being cheated by his uncle, he being Jacob. Jacob spends 20 years being cheated by his uncle. Now, if there's not a sowing and reaping story in that, I don't know where there is. He deceived his father and was deceived by his father-in-law for 20 years. 
The Bible speaks of, uh, in several places, well, several different times, one place, but several different times. It says that over those 20 years, Laban, who was Jacob's uncle, changed Jacob's wages 10 times. In other words, he cheated him, lied to him 10 different times over those 20 years. You remember the story how that Jacob goes and agrees to work for seven years to be Laban's servant to have his daughter Rachel. And then he's deceived after the end of those seven years. He's deceived by his father-in-law, his uncle Laban. And he gives him his firstborn, which is Leah. A couple of things about this. Jacob would not submit to God. So he wound up submitting to a, a, a man for 20 years. That's kind of the way it works, folks. When we choose to resist or reject submitting to God's plan, you wind up being submitted to something else, and it's never what you want it to be. Secondly, Jacob attempts for most of his life to usurp the right of the firstborn rather than leave it in the hands of God. And by Laban, his father-in-law and his uncle, switching wives on him on his wedding night, he finds out that he has to now be subject to the right of the firstborn. In his case, it was the firstborn of the daughters. Because that's the excuse that Laban gave. He said, I can't give you my secondborn daughter until after I give you my first. So take her and spend a week with her, and then I'll give you the other one. Sounds foreign to our culture. I don't know, maybe you ladies would like for it to be that way again. Who knows? I think I kind of know. But nevertheless, that's what the Bible said it was like in those days. So Jacob serves for 20 years. Now, there are some things that happen in Jacob's uh, experience that are worth mentioning as well. He comes to the place... um, I should say this, when Esau finds out that uh, Jacob has tricked him, we see something else about Isaac. You remember the story about uh, before we picked up reading in chapter 25, the 24th chapter tells us about how that Abraham went to great lengths to get Isaac a wife that was not of the Canaanites. And so he went to a faraway country and to uh, kindred family members type thing and finds a wife, finds Rebecca, who's a wife for Isaac. Isaac doesn't do any of that. Isaac spends no time whatsoever trying to ensure that his children get the right kind of wives. And when Esau finds out that he's been tricked by Jacob, his brother, after he threatens to kill him and all that kind of stuff, Because he knows he's going to tick off his father, he goes and gets two wives, marries them both at the same time of the Canaanites. And the Bible says specifically it became a grief to both Isaac and Sarah for the rest of their lives. Furthermore, that's the point where Isaac then says to Jacob, you need to go somewhere else and find a wife. He agrees with Rebekah's plan for uh, Jacob to go to Laban and the country of her brother, Syria. And he says, go find a wife there of our family members. Now, why Isaac did not make that a priority like his father did is another question that we have to ask about Isaac. I don't know about you, but I come away without a very positive view of Isaac, either spiritually or naturally. I mean, he's just to hang her own. When Esau finds out that Jacob has run to his uncle, Laban, and gone a far distance away, to show you what kind of person Esau is, when he finds out that part of the the admonition or instruction that Isaac gives to Jacob was to find a wife of his own kindred, Esau goes and joins himself to Uncle Ishmael, Isaac's brother, and who would be about 115 years old at the time. And he takes Uncle Ishmael's wife 
and adds that to his harem. Real sharp guy. You could well understand if this is the kind of character traits that Esau is exhibiting, why God did not want him to be the heir. Abraham, Isaac, and Esau would not have gone well. So Jacob goes and spends these 20 years, or almost 20 years, serving his father or serving his mother's brother. And then he comes to the place, well, on his way before he gets there. He's, um, let's pick up in chapter 28, verse 10. This is after Esau went to Ishmael and took unto him the wives which he had. So now Jacob is on his way to Laban, hadn't gotten there yet. It said, and Jacob went out from Beersheba, that's the well of the oath, and went toward Haran. And he lighted upon a certain place and tarried there all night because the sun was set. And he took up the stones of that place and put them for his pillows and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed and behold, a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, thy father and the God of Isaac, the land whereon thou liest to thee, will I give it and to thy seed. And thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth, and thou shalt spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in thee and in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And behold, I am with thee, and will keep thee in all the places which whither thou goest, and will bring thee again unto this land, for I will not leave thee until I have done that which, was, uh, which I have spoken to thee of. And Jacob awakened out of his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I knew it not. And the next morning he sets up a pillar, gets some stones and sets up a pillar. Now let me ask you a question. Was it God's plan for Jacob to ever leave the land? We have no reason to think that it was. We know the story and it's so easy to read the story and say, well, I guess for some reason God wanted it to be that way. But did God ever want him to leave the land? If Jacob had left it up to God to work it out, Would he have ever had to go? Or was this something that just cost him 20 years to get back to the place that God intended for him to be all along? See, that's more in line with human experience when you try to do things on your own than the idea that God wanted him to go to the strange land. He could have gone to the other land and found his wife or wives But we don't have any reason to believe that God ever wanted him to leave the land. Because the times that God appears to him are in the land. He spends many years serving Laban. And he comes to the place where he says, I want to go back. I want to go back to my father's land. And Laban doesn't want him to go. Because Laban uh, says that he knows that he's been blessed because of Jacob. He knows the Lord has blessed him because of him, because of Jacob. So he doesn't want him to go. So he asked him, he says, what can I do to make you stay? I'll, I'll pay you whatever you say is fair. And that's when Jacob comes up with the idea of thinning out the herds. And he would take everything that's speckled and spotted and uh, not of the, the appearing the fire, finest quality. And he comes up with the idea of putting the, the stakes, the poles and stuff speckled stakes in front of the the lambs and in front of the cattle so that when they conceive, they'll bring forth the ones that would be his property rather than Laban's. Now, something's changing with Jacob. We don't see at any point in time in the 20 years that he's there with Laban in Syria. We don't see any reference whatsoever to him praying, inquiring of the Lord, building an altar or anything. It's like it's absolutely far into his mind or to his thinking to trust in God. He spent those 20 years in Syria because he didn't trust God. And he spends those 20 years not trusting God. But things begin to change when he decides that he wants to go back to his father's land. Maybe he decides it's been long enough now. Maybe I could talk some sense into Esau if he still wants to kill me, whatever. But he comes up with the idea that he wants to return. When he makes a deal with Laban, 
to take whatever is speckled or spotted as far as the herds and the flocks are concerned. Then he quits talking about going back. He must have been contented. We don't know how long that it was, but it was some period of time because it talks about how that he wound up being the owner of just about everything that Laban owned or once possessed. Turn with me over to uh, chapter 31, I think. Now, the end result is that the sons of Laban and his servants realize that Jacob has now deceived the master deceiver, Laban. And that seems to have been his intent. And so now he comes up with the idea that since they're speaking evil of him, that he wants to return, better get out of town while he can. And so he chooses a point in time when... uh, When Laban is away, three days away, three days a journey away, and he takes his wives and his flocks and his herds and everything that he has and everything that's rightfully his, and he leaves the land. And Laban comes back and he's hot because now basically he stripped him of all of his goods. And so Laban goes chasing after him, and God appears to Laban in a dream and says, Don't you dare talk to him, either good or bad. So when he goes to where Jacob is, Jacob and his company is. Then he speaks very kindly to him. He says, look, I'm, you've taken away my daughters. You've taken away all of her stuff. It doesn't seem right that you should go in the middle of the night like you did while we were away. And he and um, Jacob come to terms and split and part company and so forth. Now, in uh, what I want you to see, the part I want you to see is in chapter 32. After Jacob leaves Laban... It says in verse 1, And Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. Here's the point I want you to see. When he left Laban, that's when God starts talking to him again. There's been no indication, like I said. Certainly God hadn't appeared to him in these 20 years. He's not even inquired of the Lord, according to the Scripture, for any time in these 20 years. But now all of a sudden when he leaves... When he starts going back to the land that he was supposed to be in, in my opinion, that he was supposed to be in all the time. That's when the angels of God met him. God starts appearing to him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's host. And he called the name of that place Mahanaim or something. That literally means two bands or two hosts. In other words, where it says this is when the angels of God met him and he saw two, he saw, said that this is the Lord's host. It's, it literally means he saw two bands of people. Two bands of people, two, two uh, battalions of, of angels or whatever the case might be, whatever they'd be called. Now, what for? One was to protect him from Laban, who just left and went back home. And the other is to protect him from Esau. In other words, the Lord is going to be his defense on his journey back. And he doesn't have to worry about Laban coming up from the rear and doing anything against him. So... Uh, I skipped something. Where was it? Oh, here's the part that I missed. Chapter 31, after Laban starts realizing that Jacob is outmaneuvered him, it says in verse 3, it says, And the Lord said unto Jacob, here's the first time that God speaks to him for all the time that he's been there. Now it's God's idea. Before it was Laban, uh, before it was Jacob's idea, apparently he had something stirring in his heart. Now it's the Lord's idea. The Lord said unto Jacob, Return unto the land of thy fathers and to thy kindred, and I will be with thee. So God's idea is, is for when to, it, God tells him when he wants him to go. And then when he's on his way, the angels meet him, and he starts dividing his stuff trying to appease Esau, do whatever he can to appease Esau. Here's what I've been trying to get to, and I'm sorry if I've been kind of stumbling around to get there. I want you to look with me to the story of where Jacob wrestles with God. Chapter 32, verse 22. 
Here's a story that has never sat right with me in any way that I've ever heard it taught. It just doesn't seem to fit that Jacob prevailed in prayer. And the way to prevail in prayer is to whip God in a wrestling match. It just never has fit. So after Esau, after Jacob prepares to meet Esau and he's divided all of the stuff and he's divided his family members, he doesn't know what to expect. He doesn't know what uh, Esau's going to do. He doesn't know if Esau's still mad at him or whatever. So he takes things and prepares them to, to meet um, Esau. I said 22, it should be verse 24, chapter 32, verse 24. And it says, and Jacob was left alone and there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. I want you to realize something, folks, and, and I assume you've heard the same things taught about this that I have, that Jacob wrestled with God and would not let God go until he promised a blessing. Is that how you receive blessings from God? Is it a wrestling match with God that's necessary to get a blessing? Now, hasn't Jacob already been promised before he ever left the promised land that God would be with him wherever he goes and would bless him because Abraham obeyed him? Didn't we read that earlier? Well, then why in the world would Jacob have to wrestle something out of God for a promise that God's already made? just doesn't fit. I want you to notice it does not say that Jacob wrestled with God. It said God wrestled with him. And there's a huge difference there, folks. Huge difference. A lot of people try to wrestle with God because they don't understand that faith is the way you receive. And so they wrestle with their emotions and make deals with God and try to promise this and try to promise that and they promise to quit this and start doing that and all the other kind of stuff. But that's not what this says. Notice verse 24 and it says, And Jacob was left alone and there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of day. Now the word man we know is it's talking about an angel. I think we could go so far as to say it was the angel of the covenant. It was most probably Jesus himself. When Jacob names this place after it's all over, he names it, I met God, names it as the place where he met God face to face. So the angel is a representation if it's not God himself. It's a representation of God. I believe it was Jesus. So let's read the story. Jacob was left alone and there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. And when he saw that he prevailed not against him, he touched the hollow of his thigh and the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint. As he wrestled with him and he said, let me go for the day breaketh. And he said, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. And he said unto him, what is thy name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. For as a prince thou hast power with God and with men and hast prevailed. And Jacob asked him and said, tell me, I pray thee, what is thy name? And he said, Wherefore is it that thou dost ask after my name? And he blessed him there. And Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. And he passed over Penuel. As he passed over Penuel, the sun rose upon him, and he halted or limped upon his thigh. Therefore the children of Israel eat not of the sinew which is shrank, which is upon the hollow of the thigh until this day, because he touched the hollow of Jacob's thigh and the sinew that shrank. Now let me ask you a question. If this, is a, if this is the way that it is and it's all there is to it is what we're reading in Scripture and what the, what the words denote, then we have some conclusions that we have to draw. First of all, if you ever get in a wrestling match with Jesus, you can't expect him to be any stronger than you. Because he wasn't any stronger than Jacob. And Jacob's not a man of the field. He's mama's boy. He's been taking care of sheep and herds and flocks and all that kind of stuff. But he's, it's not like he's Samson. See, the story just doesn't make sense. Which means that we've got to be looking at the story in the wrong way. Because the story does make sense when we understand it. So here's the deal. Why... Would God be wrestling? Why would Jesus be wrestling with, with Jacob? There's only one answer for that. And that is, it's not that Jacob wants something from the Lord. It's that the Lord wants something from Jacob. 
Otherwise, there's no reason for, the, for the, the angel of the covenant to wrestle with him. He didn't have to appear. He didn't even have to be there. The Lord wants something from Jacob. What does the Lord want from Jacob? Well, let's see what happened. They're wrestling. And he, it says the, the Lord, meaning the angel, the man that's wrestling with, with uh, Jacob, prevailed not. What does that mean? Do you think there's any human being on the earth that would be stronger than the weakest angel? Is that even a possibility? I don't believe it is. So why then did the angel not prevail against Jacob? Because there's something that Jacob won't give up. See, we read it just the opposite of what it was. We read that Jacob's trying to get the Lord to give something up, and that's the blessing. Well, he, hasn't he already received the blessing of the firstborn? Wouldn't that be the blessing of Abraham? What other blessing does he need? Has he not seen the blessing work? He's now got so much stuff, he's divided into companies. He's spoiled Laban in these 20 years when he was outside the will of God. He's been told by the Lord to return and God will be with him and bless him and take care of him. He's seen the angel hosts as protecting agents for himself, what other blessing would Jacob be after? He has sons born into himself. What blessing would it be one? What other blessing is there? Now, it's not that Jacob wants something from the Lord. It's that the Lord wants something from Jacob. This is a turning point in Jacob's life. It's a turning point where he goes from trusting in himself and doing things in, in his own way, in his own manner, to where he's relying on the Lord and, and the Lord only. Where it says, and the man prevailed not, he said, let me go for the day is breaking. And Jacob said, I will not let thee go. Notice what it says. I will not let thee go. Verse 26. And the angel said, let me go for the day breaketh. And Jacob said, I will not let thee go. I want you to realize something, folks. Jacob's not wrestling anymore. He's holding on. Now, why is he holding on? He's holding on because the angel touched the hollow of his thigh. Now, this is something else about this story that's always bugged me. Because the story is always told that uh, because Jacob was touched by the angel and his hip went out of joint, he limped for the rest of his life. The Bible didn't say that. Doesn't say that at all. It says one thing did continue, and that is among the Hebrews, they don't let anybody eat the part that was touched by the angel that was injured. Out of joint literally means out of order. Now, what is it that they won't let you eat? What is it that the Jews forbid to be eaten? Well, it says it's the sinew. You know what a sinew is? It's a tendon. Anybody ever tried to eat a tendon? It's not a good part of the meat. Sometimes, depending on the cuts of meat we get, there is a tendon still attached to the meat, and that's the part you wind up chewing and spitting out because it's tough as leather. So where it says the Jews won't let you eat or command you not to eat the tendon or the sinew, notice it says it shrank. What it literally means is when the angel touched Jacob... Which goes, well, when the angel touched Jacob, he pulled a muscle or pulled a tendon, pulled a ligament. And that's what it means where it says, the Bible says that his hip went out of joint. It means his hip went out of order, out of working order. It doesn't say that it happened one time and lasted forever. It doesn't say that he limped forever. It said he limped when he went across the brook the next day. That's all it says. Which also would, would fit with the story if the angel is able to touch one part of his leg, one part of Jacob's leg, so that he pulled a muscle and had to limp, then why is the angel not prevailing against him? Because the angel is after something that only Jacob can give up. And that's his trust and confidence in God. But he comes to the place where he says, I will not let thee go. What that means literally is that Jacob is no longer wrestling. Now he's hanging on. 
He's using the angel for his total and complete support. He's got all of his weight on the angel. And he's holding on for dear life. Now, folks, that's exactly the place that God wants all of us. Where we're not fighting anymore. We're just holding on to him. That's what, after the, that's what the angel was after all along. Notice something else. Here's one, another reason why I believe that the angel was the Lord. What angel has the right to change your name? If you'll check, you'll find out that's nowhere in the angel handbook. But God does that. God changed Abraham's name. Notice it says, um, verse 27, And he said unto him, What is thy name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, Thy name shall be called no more Jacob. Jacob being supplanter, deceiver, conniver. He's lived up to his name for sure. But from this point forward, his name will be called Israel. For as a prince, thou hast power with God and with men and hast prevailed. Now, what caused Jacob to prevail? Did he out-wrestle the Lord? No, he finally surrendered. That's when he prevailed. That's when he surrendered. Now, in Hebrew, El is the name for God or one of the names for God. And any Hebrew name that has El in it means God does something. For example, Daniel means God judges. Gabriel means God is my strength. So when he changed his name to Israel, it's saying God does something. El is the God part. I-S-R-A. Well, my spelling is not, not real good tonight. Anyway, the rest of the word is the Hebrew word for commands. So Israel means God commands. Israel, Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, prevailed by hanging on to the Lord's commands. And that's what God was after to begin with. And once Israel did that, once Jacob did that, once Jacob surrendered to the commands of the Lord and quit trying to do it himself, that's when he prevailed. End of the story is that God, that uh, Jacob meets Esau the next day. Esau is no longer angry. He doesn't even want the gifts and the stuff that Jacob prepares for him. Jacob goes his way, builds an altar, and realizes that the blessing of God was there all the time. Cost him 20 years, folks, trying to do things himself. You ever tried to do things to help God out? I hope it hadn't cost you 20 years. I know people that it has. I know people that have disobeyed God, failed to yield to what is what the Lord told them to do. And it's cost them years, cost them God's plan for their lives. One of the things is, let me leave you with this. I've made the statement several times, but it bears repetition, and I really want you to see it. We have the idea, and, uh, well, it seems to be in our nature to think that everything has to be perfect for God's will to come to pass. If we make the wrong confession, if we take the wrong step, if we make the wrong move, boy, we're in trouble. That's not the way God dealt with his people. Abraham made mistake after mistake after mistake. And God still got him where he wanted him to be because his heart was right. Isaac made mistake after mistake and God's word, that which he had prophesied before, still was made good concerning Jacob and Esau. Jacob made huge mistakes, huge mistakes, mistakes that led him into sin, not just disobedience, but led him into sin. And even though it took him, cost him time, God still got him where he wanted him to be. The important part is the right heart. The important part is for our heart to be right toward God, seeking his guidance and his direction. But the idea that if we do anything wrong, God's waiting for the, the, just any small step outside of his perfect will. So that he can bring some tragedy or judgment or problem on us or something like that. That's just foolish. Time and time and time again, the patriarchs, the ones who set the example for us, make human stupid mistakes. Maybe mistakes that you and I would never make. And God doesn't hold it against them. 
He still gets them to where he wants them to be. How much more so for you and I who have the Holy Ghost within us? Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the example that we have from Scripture of your goodness and your mercy. Thank you, Father, for the life of God that's within us, for the privilege that we have to be led of the Lord and to have our steps ordered of you. Father, our desire is to never miss it, never make a mistake. But we thank you, the Father, that if we should, that you're still on our side. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We have Holy Ghost help to get us back on track. We have forgiveness of sins available to us through the blood of Jesus. And Father, we have the knowledge that you're still with us. You're still for us. You're still on our side. Thank you, Father, for bringing us into your perfect plan, your will, your plan, and your purpose for our lives. In Jesus' precious name, we'll lean on you, Father, and only upon you, only upon your word. And we declare that we'll prevail just like Jacob finally did. Lord, let us do it without all the trouble that he got himself into. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, God bless you. Thank you for being with us.